Alright, hello. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelics, science, and psychotherapy. Today, Brian and I are going to explore some territory that we haven't spent much time with. A lot of what we've talked about so far have been many of the benefits and um, wonderful things, or potentially wonderful things, about psychedelics. We've done this because we feel strongly that it's important to counteract 50 years of demagoguery and misinformation about psychedelic drugs in order to combat stigma, you know, in order to present a more balanced view of the subject. However, that doesn't mean there aren't risks, and we want to talk about some of those. Uh, today we're going to talk about one in particular that is uh, unique to psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, which is the interaction of psychotherapy with psychedelic use and how that can present risks with a very vulnerable patient. So we'll talk more specifically about that and some of the ethical issues that surround how to create proper boundaries about around the psychotherapeutic relationship in the context of psychedelic use. In addition, we'd really appreciate it if you would give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and perhaps share us on social media. Uh, we hope that this conversation can disseminate far and wide and grow so that we can address these issues as they continue to come up as the psychedelic renaissance continues to unfold. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today, um, we're going to dive in to, I think, a few different topics um, that we haven't spent much time with at all yet. I know so much of what we focused on for the first uh, almost dozen episodes have been, you know, trying to understand the experience, talking about the benefits of the experience, how to conceptualize the experience, history of psychedelics, um, integrating them into our life. Um, a lot of what can be useful and valuable with psychedelics and psychedelic experiencing. A lot of that focus has been, I think, from you and I having a perspective of this field needing a lot of destigmatization. There's been kind of a 40 or 50 year relentless campaign to demonize these drugs. Um, and, you know, then the pendulum swings the other way. It's like, well, hold on. We let's talk about um, what can be useful here. What's valuable here. What's beautiful here. And I'm not going to say that I think the pendulum has swung too far in that direction because I don't think that it has. I think that, you know, it's, it's fine to talk about all those benefits because they're there and they're tremendous. Um, that being said, I think it's useful to talk about some of the risks involved we're not going to talk about all of them today. I think a area that we will dig we will dig in today is talking about the vulnerability of someone who is under the influence of uh, psilocybin, MDMA, any psychedelic, and how in that suggestible, vulnerable state, you know, people can be taken advantage of 
in a myriad of ways, including sexually, um, you know, including, you know, ethically, I think influenced um, inappropriately, uh, open to suggestion, open to, to, I think, sort of therapists putting ideas or perspectives in someone else's head, who's, you know, in that suggestive open state. Uh, and so as we think about this becoming um, a enterprise of guided experiences where you have therapists taking on an uh, important role in the process, um, there's risk there. You know, there's risk of misconduct. Um, and how do you, I guess, the, what the question I really want to talk about today is how do we, you know, as a field enter into that with a real clear sense of what those risks are and what we can do to mitigate those risks. Um, there was a some reports of uh, misconduct in some prominent psychedelic uh, therapy circles um, that have surfaced this week. We're not going to go into those because neither you or I have any additional light to shed on the specifics of any of those stories, um, other than it's unsurprising to hear that that would be the case. Um, in, uh, it's the case, unfortunately, in pretty much any human endeavor at this point. And so we need to understand what the risks are and then mitigate them through sort of structural norms and practices, in my opinion. So that's that's the topic today. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts to begin with, Brian. Yeah, these there's there have been several articles criticizing psychedelic community or psychedelic researchers for not addressing the prevalence of sexual abuse in psychedelic research or this, you know, the psychedelic underground where uh, there, there have been, there has been a history of um, situations where um, therapists have behaved unethically. Um, clients have been, as you said, taken advantage of in ways physically, emotionally, sexually. And so you know, I think there, that criticism is, warranted that we want to spend some time to talk about the potential for abuse and the potential of, uh, you know, given the power imbalance, uh, you know, and it may be a place to start with since, you know, our audience is probably mostly therapists or mental health professionals that there's a power imbalance in regular old talk therapy. It's part of training for any, you know, any kind of mental health training, there, there's some degree of uh, awareness and uh, instruction around being um, being aware of that power imbalance when you meet with clients and how to mitigate that and how to not abuse that, not fall into the, the trap of acting in ways that uh, are misusing um, the power that's just naturally part of you know a therapy encounter. Right. So if you're my therapist, Nate, and I come to you, you know, it's it's a situation where I'm encouraged to be very vulnerable with you and share with you my most private details, the things I'm struggling with, the things I'm really ashamed of. And that just sort of naturally and you're not sharing about your vulnerabilities. So, you know, that just kind of automatically from the beginning sets up this sort of imbalance where you know, you're in this role of a person who is going to provide advice or is going to help me. Um, so, you know, it's very easy for clients to project that you have the answers. Um, you're more, uh, you know, well along on your path of growth than I am. You've got it figured out. 
all kinds of things like that um, that can be present in the therapy room without it being explicitly said. So if we're not paying attention to it, we're more likely to allow those implicit um, dynamics that are part of human nature, human beings in relationships with one another to get in the way or to impact what we're doing in our work with clients. Absolutely. And I, I think what's really um, important about what you just said is it sort of takes this topic from its extreme manifestation, you know, uh, sexual abuse to its much more mundane banal way that it shows up, uh, which is, you know, maybe really subtly in, you know, interactions in which uh, you're not aware of the influence you're having as a therapist and you're not careful enough with that and that you're sort of imposing the way that you see the world or that the way that you feel like the world should be onto another human, you know, who gets to have their own perspective, gets to form their own, you know, values and choices. And my job is to impose on that, you know, but if you aren't careful, you will. Um, and so that's the subtle power dynamic there, you know, and it's not, you know, and, and, and I'm sure that in, in, in some ways that's a hard, I mean, I know that that's a hard line to walk. And in some days you don't walk it perfectly and, you know, you put your perspective on, you know, on someone else. Um, but I think being aware of that and talking about that and, and understanding how that happens on a, on a, in a subtle way all the time is really important to understand. And you know, as we're talking, as I'm talking about this too, it, it makes it sounds like it's just a slippery slope continuum. And, and I'm not sure that's the case. I'm not sure that if you, you know, have a habit to give a little too much advice that, that puts you on a slippery slope to being abusive with somebody. Um, but I do think being really aware all of the time of the fact that you are perceived as, as an authority perceived as a powerful figure sometimes in someone's life. And that then you put that into a, psychedelic space and that can become uh tremendously imbalanced you know and you can go from being a heavily influential person to being you know in this guru space of somebody to just be idealized and looked up to yeah and i think that has tremendous risks for both parties you know to to be perceived as a guru is a risky thing for a person for a person's ego and to perceive someone else in that way is ultimately disempowering automatically, in my opinion. And so there's all kinds of layers of uh, invisible dynamics that might be present in, in the therapy room. Uh, and so when we talk about power balance or you know, the idea of boundaries or the relationship between client and therapist, you know, the, the, the identities of both client and therapist are going to um, be present whether that's race, sexuality, gender. Um, and again, if we're not paying attention to them, if we're not acknowledging them, at least internally, it's not, I'm not saying we have to um, verbally point all these things out and, and name all these things all the time. Um, but if we're not vigilant of our own impulses, our own um, motivations, our own process in the therapy encounter, I think you're right. Like we're more likely to, you know, fall into maybe getting our needs met or, uh, you know, saying things that maybe aren't as well thought out and in the, in the client's best interest. And, you know, I think it, it's interesting to me that 
in my experience, therapists will sometimes joke about ethics. Uh, and, and the joke is sort of don't sleep with your clients. Like in the, the, the sort of the, the butt of the joke is that it's so obvious, like, why do we need that? You know, and yet in traditional therapy, this happens, you know, this happens consistently. Uh, it's a small percentage, but, you know, I think my, my point in, in it's, in, it's not as small as you would hope. Sadly. Right. Exactly. You know, exactly. seven to, tw- I've read that seven to 12 and it's, you know, it's just one study that I'm citing here. So, I, but it's that seven to 12 in a, in a survey of therapists, anonymously conducted survey of therapists, seven to 12 percent had admitted to having slept with a client at some point. Yes. Um, which is tremendously high. Yes. Too opinion. high. And, and so, you know, I, I would love to sit here and believe that, Oh, that would never happen to me. I would never transgress in that way. And, and I would, I would imagine that, you know, people who are in that situation might have said the same thing at some point. Right. So it, it's sort of like a humble perspective for me to recognize that sure. I, I'm just as likely to fall prey to abusing my power as a therapist as anybody else. Um, so I don't want to develop this sort of false confidence that I'm above that. Uh, you know, I would, I would love to believe that I would never harm a client. Um, uh, and, you know, that's obviously something that I care deeply about is not harming the people I work with. Um, but I think we need to acknowledge the power of the situation. And when you look at these examples uh, of, you know, case studies where a therapist has behaved unethically or inappropriately, you know, you can see where the, the, the therapist is perhaps getting their own needs met or they feel like they, they uh, you know, rationalize that they make an exception to the rule. Uh, and, and, you know, all these kinds of examples can help sort of illuminate um, the complexity of you know, what it's like to be in a relationship with another, from one human being to another human being and how mm-hmm. easy it is to lose track of, again, the, all the dynamics that are happening uh, when we are in relationship. Yeah. So that's <clears throat> part of it is, you know, for each of us to, yeah, be aware, self-examine and um, work to notice in really subtle ways um, our own behavior. I mean, that's part of it. The other part and the much, much larger part, in my opinion, because you can't ever count on every, not everybody's going to do that work. Not everybody's going to, and there are probably bad actors who have no intention of doing that work, who are likely to abuse and not necessarily think anything of it, or, you know, like that's, there's a percentage that's that, building structures and norms around how, you know, uh, especially in particular psychedelic therapy is conducted, you know, I think is, it is, is tremendously important in how you, how you kind of mitigate those risks. You know, you, what maps has done, you know, requiring at least, you know, requiring two therapists, a male and a female, I think that's a really smart way to do that. You know, it's not foolproof as there has been evidence. It's not foolproof. Um, but it certainly is a step in the right direction. It's the kind of thing I'm talking about, of like building in safeguards into how practices are conducted uh, that make it less likely that if someone were to have a momentary lapse or if someone were to have bad intentions, that they're just simply not going to be able to act on those. 
you know, one thing I kind of, to structure the, the rest of this conversation, um, there was an article uh, that was recently published, a qualitative exploration of relational ethical challenges and practices in psychedelic healing uh, by William Brennan, Margot Jackson, Catherine McLean, and Joseph Ponterotto. Um, and I kind of thought we could structure um, a little bit around this article because, like, you know, essentially what it does is an interview with um, various practitioners, um, both who have been, you know, underground and some, you know, and who are credentialed, uh, who have done the work. And guides, from essentially. This, they glean, yeah, exactly. They have been, you know, guiding psychedelic psychotherapy with people. Yes. Uh, and what they glean from the article, what they produce are um, themes, uh, both, and they divide it into descriptive themes and prescriptive themes. The descriptive themes are essentially uh, that these therapists or guides, what they described as ethical challenges in the work, right? Like things that are going to come up, things that we need to think about, um, just descriptions of things that are likely to come up when you are in this position of guiding people. Um, the prescriptive things are things that the guides had viewed as ways to mitigate those risks, you know, so things that were that the guides considered to be really important um, to reduce the risks of transgressions. Um, and so I don't think we're going to go through all of them. There's 13 descriptive themes and 15, but I kind of maybe can throw uh, a few out um, that we can talk about specifically. One I wanted to spend some time with. Um, that I think is unique to psychedelic psychotherapy. It's not really a part of therapy much at all um, or explicitly not at all. Um, and it's the use of touch, right? This is something in psychedelic psychotherapy that is viewed as vitally important to the process, right? But it's not a part of therapy. You know, it's, 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 it's generally considered, you know, off limits, like touch isn't a thing in, in, you know, person to person therapy. I mean, I think sometimes a therapist may or may not hug a client. I've, I've known people who have different policies on that. I think it's generally looked down upon, but yeah. um, unless just a small, even, just, just a small correction there, I would say, unless you're trained in a somatic or body focused approach, there yes. are some approaches where yep. there is explicit training, but I would agree like most, yes. most therapists who are not in that yeah, touches a bit taboo. Yeah, right. Um, and so that is a really big difference. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so I'm involved in a clinical trial of MDMA for social anxiety that um, at the time of this recording, we are still getting up and going and have recently completed the MAPS training. And, you know, we've been talking amongst our team about this, this topic. And it, it makes me personally, uh, admittedly uncomfortable. I don't, I don't have, engage in a physical contact with my regular clients. So for me, it's kind of a new, um, a new clinical area to think about. And as you sort of are intimating, all of my training pretty much has been to not do that, right? Don't give any um, confusing messages. Uh, don't, you know, even, even uh, some training that I had around, you know, you, you want to help clients be able to soothe themselves and learn other ways to manage distress. So 
you know, while it might be tempting to put a hand on a shoulder, there's benefits to not do that. So uh, mm-hmm. it's a, it's from, you know, when I first encountered this topic and thought about it, I was, I was not sure about how I, I might react in that situation in terms of uh, if, if touch is part of the model, um, then how, how does that work? Right. And I think, you know, from what the article stated and what I've, you know, what's, what's part of my experience in maps training is, you know, there's a lot of negotiation around it uh, and negotiation in the sessions where there is not an altered state of consciousness, as well as mm-hmm. uh, getting consent during the session, paying very close attention to um, how it's received by the client, paying close attention to how it feels for you to engage in whatever the physical contact is. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, it, it requires a lot of um, awareness. It requires a lot of um, clarity around, you know, what's the intent here? What's the purpose? And what I've, you know, what, what people who have worked in these trials have stated and what these underground guides have stated is that it's, it's almost unethical to, to withhold touch at times. It's such a part of the healing process that they can't imagine it not being available as a potential kind of clinical tool or um, uh, intervention to, to use in the moment. Yes. And this is something that I would like to know more about. And this I actually want to push back against. I would like to see evidence for that claim. You know, that it's that it is vital and necessary to the healing process. I'm not saying it isn't, but I'm saying we certainly don't have evidence to say that it is either. Um, And that's an assumption that I think is often made like, oh, it's just it's essential to have touch during that in order to facilitate the healing process. Maybe I'm not saying it isn't, but I'm saying but I am not saying it is. I'm not convinced of it. And I don't think that there is uh, evidence out there that convinces me of it, you know. Um, And so I think just assuming but we have to build this around that because that's an essential ingredient. Why? You know, like, like that's, that's an assumption. Um, again, maybe that assumption is true. I'm not saying it isn't. <laughs> I don't know. Um, we've talked at length already, you know, in, in other episodes about the embodied physical experience of psychedelic use and how it's such a physical thing. And so in some ways it would definitely stand to reason that, you know, like part of that physical experience is pushing against touching, hugging, you know, having contact with another person, but maybe not necessarily. Um, You know, if I, if I, I, in the absence of evidence, you know, I kind of can't help, but, look back at my own personal experience, which doesn't generalize to everybody, of course, but is the experience that I've had. Um, and I've never considered, you know, certainly there's been times when I've touched other humans um, and it has been a, a good experience, but there's also been times in which I haven't, or when I haven't necessarily wanted to, or wouldn't have wanted to. And it's very difficult to know in that space, what another person is going to want or is going to need. And it's so easy to put your own idea, like touches healing, touches important. Well, yeah, that's your trip, man. You know, like that's not necessarily what the person you're sitting with is feeling. I've, I've seen experience, you know, and been guided before and been touched and been like, you know, that's not the thing, man. That's not it. Like, no, I'm, but, but the person with me is very convinced that that's the thing because, you know, I'm on the floor, I'm, 
you know, it's like, well, maybe, you know, like you don't know. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've also had experiences that have been very physical. I think that don't require someone else, you know, like my relationship with my body doesn't necessarily re- require, you know, someone else's intervention. Um, and so it's, it's so subtle. And, and, and I think the agenda that you bring into it, like if you come in with, again, with this agenda of like touch is healing, you're very likely to put that on someone else, whether or not that is what the person wants or needs or not. Um, and so assuming that that is automatically a good thing, I think is suspect. And I, I do think it introduces a, a slippery slope, you know, as soon as you have, I mean, I, I think the touch barrier is a barrier for a reason in this setting for sure. <laughs> um, so I, I have a lot of, uh, questions about that you know and then i think there's a huge range of, of things between like putting your hand on someone's wrist you know uh, feels pretty innocuous to me but but i mean and these are the things i feel like need to be a really explicitly spelled out like not just like oh therapeutic touch what the fuck is therapeutic touch like we need to define the hell out of that right and talk about what it is and what it isn't in in uh extreme detail extreme detail what's therapeutic touch and what's uh touch that you know maybe it's therapeutic maybe it isn't but it's like no don't spoon during a session like um could that be healing and helpful yeah is that also like perhaps an ethical bridge that like we shouldn't cross i don't know probably from my point of view maybe i'm wrong um but like it needs to be very 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 explicit and there needs to be reasons that are not just the intuition of the therapist guiding things. Of course, there's the argument that a person in an altered state can't give consent because they're in an altered state. Right. And I think there are differences between MDMA and psilocybin here where, mm-hmm. you know, in psilocybin and uh, higher doses, you know, there's, there's less interaction with the therapist. The person is really kind of more off in their own internal experience. Whereas MDMA, there's a, there's a, a, a larger relational component. So I agree with you that I, when I first was learning about touch in psychedelic assisted therapy or MDMA assisted therapy, I, I wanted very clear parameters about when, when it's okay to use and when it's not okay to use and, how are we, if we're going to cross over into that boundary, uh, I wanted uh, direction, you know, very clear parameters. Yeah. Cause it's a big deal. I feel like it's a, it's, it's a, it's a boundary. That's a very big deal. And so I'm not saying that I'm rigidly against it. Like, Oh, you, you have to keep that boundary completely and totally sealed, no touch, but there needs to be a real justification as to why, and a real clear definition as to why. You know, and that should be um, just super duper explicit. So that's, um, yeah, that, that's the that's the touch um, aspect um, there. Um, you know, again, there's there's this list of both descriptive and prescriptive um, themes. Now, the prescriptive around touch, right? Because I feel like within, yeah, there is sort of a um, an ideology. It seems that that touches good and healing. Um, which as a, as humans, we know that it is, you know, like touch is important and healing. So I'm not trying to argue that it isn't. Um, 
But again, in this space, in this particular context, you know, it just needs to be thought out super carefully. Um, and it does mention, like you mentioned, the two-stage consent process for touch, which is absolutely important, right? Like that has to be spelled out when everybody's sober, you know, like, and, and really clearly, you know, um, touch on the arm, hug, like all these things need to be understood. Like if they were to be used, they'd have to be spelled out extremely clearly ahead of time. You know, and then again, during the session, you know, so just super clarity, um, super clear um, expectations. Um, and uh, as a field, I think we need to define pretty clearly what's um, what's useful and what's not and why we think that. And again, um, we're, we're talking, you know, we're speaking from a particular bias. You know, I, I think it might be good to acknowledge that in. In other countries, touch is more of a part of traditional therapy. Um, mm -hmm. Therapists are more apt to uh, offer to hold somebody's hand or put an arm around a shoulder. So, you know, and, and I think just to be very clear, and I think you are being clear, Nate, you're not arguing that touch is bad or we shouldn't. But from our particular mm -hmm. perspective, our training, my experience as a therapist, it does feel very risky to start engaging in physical contact with clients. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think in the light of what we talked about, the potential for abuse, mm -hmm. potential for transgressions, it, it just feels really risky to, 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 to be having this vulnerability with an altered state of consciousness and potentially a lot of contact. And, you know, we're, as you mentioned, we're, we're, we know touch is good and as humans, we respond to touch too. So we're going to have, even though we might say mm -hmm. this is for the client, mm -hmm. we put an arm around a client, we're, we're going to feel things too. And so you know, are we prepared for that? Are we, are we aware of the strong emotions that that might, you know, evoke in us of closeness with a person or, uh, you know, whatever the emotions are, um, Again, the, the idea which comes through a lot in this article of the importance of self-awareness. Oh, there was another one here I wanted to talk about. It's um, deep intimacy and connection and mutual benefit in love and care, right? So we're talking about um, in these sessions, you know, this really interpersonal connection that doesn't just flow one way. You know, this real close intimacy um, and love, you know, uh, uh, it's sort of like a, a uh, cliche, um, you know, somebody comes out of a psychedelic experience and it's like, oh, it's all love, man. It's all love. And it's a cliche for a reason, you know, and so uh, for those of us steeped in these experiences and perspective, you know, that's a very near to the surface part of what makes this healing so profound. Um, so when we talk about intimacy, we talk about love, we talk about really sharing an extremely deep experience with another human. Um, you know, that sort of connection is powerful. And also, you know, how do, what are the, you know, what are the boundaries around that? Um, how do you make sure that there's boundaries around that? Um, because that's not 
what it's about in this context isn't necessarily about like, hey, forming this deep connection between two people that might happen. But what it's about, at least what we're saying it's about, I think we should be pretty clear about that is it's about healing the person who's coming in to receive services, right? That's what it's about, you know? And so how does, you know, this intimacy, this connection, this mutual love that might arise, how does that aid their healing or how might it distract from their healing? You know, uh, I think that's a really complex question. And it also involves, well, what's the nature of the relationship that you have with your client, even coming into the session? And what's the ideal format for that? You know, is this like, uh, I could anticipate, like I'm imagining, like if you're working with a very long-term client, um, you know, and, 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 and this experience, um, you know, maybe you're in a position where, you know, you've been kind of idealized by this person and, and, you know, I could see that creating more of a, more of a intimate sort of connection, dependent connection, even then would be useful, then would be a good thing. I don't know. I think it just bears really carefully thinking about, um, uh, a lot of what that article, I think one of those articles, um, uh, that we referenced and what we can put in the show notes was like a long-term sort of like very sticky relationship between there were like lots of points of contact. Um, and it wasn't quite, it wasn't simply just a therapeutic relationship. There were, there were all these, you know, community relations and like, it was very, very intertwined. And that seems like there's a high risk for sort of emotional entanglement there. Yeah. The boundaries are definitely less clear when it comes to the psychedelic space and even the role of, you know, a guide or even what a trip is uh, for many clients, there's no prior experience with that, right? There's no prior relationships. There's no, you know, a lot of, a lot of clients don't have like a, some sort of template or model of this relationship. And, you know, what you said made me think of in the psilocybin trials, a high percentage of participants say that this was the most meaningful experience of their life. Uh, you know, up, up with the, the birth of their kid or a wedding. or, And so you as the therapist are, are, are participated in maybe the most meaningful experience the client's ever mm-hmm. been in. You, you mm-hmm. Nate, me, whoever the therapist yeah. is. And so, mm-hmm. wow, that's, that's, there's gotta be connection there, right? Like how, how could mm-hmm. there not be? Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I, you know, I, it feels like it would be fair to say, that if that's navigated ethically and appropriately, that can be harnessed for such positive growth. And that could be so helpful. And if it's not harnessed ethically, and if a therapist is not mindful, how easily that could lead to abuse and, and feeling hurt, mm-hmm. uh, feeling misled client feeling that you were there for them and you're going to be there for them. And then suddenly, you know, you've spent eight hours one day with them and you're, you're seeing them for all these sessions follow up. And then suddenly you say, all right, well now it's time to move on. Or, you know, I, 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 I can totally understand why the guides who are interviewed for this article, um, you know, have, 
one of the, the themes that emerges is uh, this uh, you know, lack of clarity around boundaries and um, mm-hmm. how to navigate this. It's, it's much different than the nice clean cut therapy hour that most of us are uh, used to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this, so this experience is often, yeah. And of course we've talked about this a lot and we don't need to overstay. It's not always the most important experience someone has had, but that is said often enough to where it's, uh, you know, it's a thing that can definitely happen um, is that people have these experiences that really rank highly on list of meaningful experiences. And to me, I mean, I think this is, that experience is about that person having that experience. Um, and it isn't about the relationship between the person who's sitting there guiding or facilitating, you know, like that's like our job. If we are a person who is sitting and facilitating, I think really needs to be in the background. It is not about us. It's really, really not about us, you know? And I, I you know, I feel like, I feel like that's part of, I, I think my questioning with touch too, like the more we assert ourselves into that space, the riskier it is, you know, in an ideal world, the way I view it is, I mean, we're, protecting space, right? And allowing them to have what experience they have. I'm not saying that there's no interaction allowed. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, it's much more complex than that. It's, but fundamentally, I think how you view your role in that is important. Like, what is your role if you're going into this? Are you really super participatory and in there, I'm trying to shape and make this a certain healing thing based on my idea of what healing thing's going to be? Or am I sort of like protecting this person's experience and, and, and standing back and, and, and creating a, a boundary around this space for them, for that to unfold in? And then what does that protected space look like over time in the nature of the relationship, you know, that you have with them? I, I can see it being very, very difficult to have an, like an ongoing therapeutic relationship with a person periodically dotted by these experiences like the boundary there seems very very hard to maintain over time maybe i'm wrong but but that seems tricky it almost seems like if you're going to be a therapist who is guiding them that's sort of a relatively short relationship you know months for that treatment and then um with the understanding that that that's like, it's ahead of time prescribed. Like, this is what this is going to be. It's going to last this long. It's going to be this many sessions. Another thing this article talks about is the degree of attunement to the therapist by the client in an altered state uh, where client, you know, you're with a client again for, you know, six to eight hours, let's say if it's MDMA or psilocybin, you know, less if you're working with ketamine or something else. And a lot of that time, maybe you're not spent interacting. You're just sitting there with the client. And, and so there's, you know, there's a lot more opportunity for uh, clients to really observe us and to feel energetically our presence and to detect nat- natural fluctuations or subtle feelings that we have about them. And, you know, especially if the altered state they're in, you know, oftentimes they're more perceptive, they're more, they're more aware of uh, what we're doing and, and our body language and our tone of voice. And the article talks about the need for personal work on the part of the therapist, that they are, they have 
a meditative practice that they're able to ground themselves. As you said, Nate, they're able to hold that space in a, a long way, a, you know, long-term manner over, over many, many hours. Um, so it's something I think for those of us who are interested in this work to really be aware of that, that can be really, really demanding to, to be sitting with somebody for that long and for that degree of attunement. Um, even if you're not, let's say in physical contact or you're not in verbal contact, that there may be a higher than the normal degree of perception that clients have about our behaviors as a clinician. I think, yeah, as we're talking here, I just want to um, emphasize that we're talking about one very specific context. We're talking about the therapeutic use within a clinical setting, right? This isn't, you know, with friends. This isn't with a community. This isn't with a spiritual community. Um, this, you know, like we're talking about the ethics of this within a specifically therapeutic frame. And I think that's important because um, I think these ethics would clearly be different in different settings. These particular, you know, like a lot of what we're talking about could kind of be perceived as sort of maybe overly rigid or prescriptive in another setting. And they would be, I mean, if you are with close friends or in community, you know, like this is totally different. We're talking about here ways to protect this space, way to interact with this space if you are a professional and basically that you're charging people money. This experience is supposed to benefit them. That's that that um, conceit or that sort of arrangement sort of creates. Yeah, it creates an expectation. It creates a power differential. It creates a um, it creates a very particular context in which certain ethical um, boundaries need to be much tighter than they might be in another setting. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. And there's reasons why there are these boundaries that we learn about when we learn to be or trained to be a therapist that are, are prescriptive and help us uh, maintain, uh, you know, a certain degree of relationship with the clients that we're working with. And so, you know, sexual, emotional abuse, there's a long history of that within psychedelic research and uh, the use of psychedelics. You know, there are people who have gone to retreats in different countries and have been abused by um, religious leaders or shamans. There's, there's been um, accounts of uh, researchers uh, abusing uh, participants in clinical trials. And so it's really important that we're having this conversation to raise this awareness and so that therapists who are entering into this work know that there's likely a greater potential for boundary violations for um, therapist abuse than in a, a traditional therapy encounter. It's good for us to really be aware of that and to set up best practices uh, as this new kind of treatment disseminates and unfolds in you know, mainstream mental health treatment, that we have best practices that, that are uh, in place so that this is as least likely to happen as possible. Yeah. And I mean, frankly, I think it could be done better just in regular psychotherapy too, as we've mm -hmm. talked about with that number, that seven to 12% number, which is uh, 
which is disturbing. Um, it's easy. I you just think of my own experience doing therapy. And we've talked about intimacy. We've talked, I mean, these, these are things that actually do arise in therapy room. You know, I'm talking to someone and, you know, they've just been really vulnerable and I can see, especially, you know, you can see how hard they've been working. You can see their suffering. Um, you see their humanness and, you know, I feel uh, intense love for many of the clients I work with. There's no other word for it. Just like an intense feeling of love for them. And that's, I believe, hugely beneficial, but it's also like, that's my feeling. Um, and so then a lot of times arising from that, I, you know, I just work with so many people, you just see them and you see uh, what they're doing and, 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 and they're opening and you feel this upswelling of love and the intense desires is just to go, I just want to hug you. I just want to wrap my arms around you and hold you. Um, but no, <laughs> like, like, no, that's not, um, I, you know, that's, that's where it stops. Like, but I mean, I think that that's a normal feeling and it feels pretty pure, right? Like if I'm sitting there and I'm, and I'm feeling like this really pure, like sense of like love and care, and I want to just offer a hug, like that feels pure. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a re there, there are reasons that there, that that's sort of like a, a, a boundary there. Um, you know, because like, they're not asking for a hug. They're not saying like, oh, I just really feel like I need a hug. Um, and that's not what we're doing. And I don't think that it's necessary. And there's a reason that that is like that. Um, but I think these are where you really have to pay attention to yourself, pay attention to your own feelings, your own needs, and make sure that you're owning, you know, your own experience and that you're keeping that separate from what's in the best interest of the person you're working with, which is the entire point of you sitting there doing the work is the best interest of the person you're working with. As you mentioned earlier, having a therapist dyad is one way to mitigate against this potential. And I think MAPS has moved away from it being male and female. Uh, now it doesn't, mm. it's a okay. variety of, of, of gender identities, but having two therapists present helps reduce the chance of uh, you know, uh, this power imbalance or some of the things that we're talking about, of course, that, you know, in the argument around accessibility, that makes it more expensive and harder to access. Um, but just to note that that is a, a, an advantage of having uh, two people in the room. We're, we're more likely to be aware of things and we're able to support each other. If I'm you know, if I'm feeling particularly triggered by a client or attracted to a client or um, feeling whatever is coming up, like I have somebody else there to um, process that with and to help balance so that, you know, it's not uh, just one person who is uh, in that space with a client. There's, there's two people there. Um, so I can definitely see that, uh, that advantage um, I don't think it's talked about often that way as, you know, that that's why there's two, two therapists. Um, but, mm-hmm. but I think that's definitely a, a huge, uh, uh, argument for maintaining that model. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's another, um, benefit of a group model potentially too, you know, as long, I mean, then you, I guess, have the risk of other group, but you know, if, if it's a open and, 
you know, there's, I think, going into a group sort of a under prohibition on, hey, you know, we're not going to touch each other. That's a, that's a, or at least here's how, um, you know, having, again, having a pretty strict contract about what the expectations are there. Um, I mean, I can see that being a benefit as well. Um, it's just such a thorny, you know, issue. And I think there's, I think there's a tendency to want to be sort of open and open-hearted and loving and just be really um, go with the flow about it. But you just can't do that. You know, you just, you you know, you just, unfortunately we live in a world in which, um, you know, in which abusers are going to find their way into any setting you can imagine. It's, It's just the world we live in. And so you have to assume that that's going to be the case. And you have to develop accordingly structures that are going to pr- protect against that. You have to think through these. You have to talk about them and you have to put, even if that means, you know, um, setting up things that feel rigid or inhuman sometimes. Um, it's finding where those lines can be drawn in a way that actually is still completely workable and therapeutic but also mitigates against the risks from someone entering into that space with bad intentions or being pulled into a place of poor decision-making by the moment. So our discussion today was not intended to be exhaustive about this topic, and we have not shared a lot of details about the history of sexual abuse in psychedelic history. Uh, One can easily find those resources. We can link to some of those in our show notes. Um, But we really wanted to have a conversation as you open with today, Nate, to balance out, you know, the tendency sometimes to get super excited about psychedelics and passionate, which I am, and to undo the the decades of stigma that we're trying to, you know, reverse that in some ways by talking about the potential here for healing and so we want to be balanced and make sure that we are acknowledging the risks, uh, whatever the risks are. We didn't cover all of the risks today, um, but that it's that no. It's this an, is a pretty narrow set of risks, actually. You know, it's mm-hmm. like there's a, there's other. Yeah, anyway, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 you're exactly right, and um, that that's that's kind of what I wanted to end by 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 saying that this is the beginning of a long conversation that we need to work out. How to, how to be in relationship to this abuse potential, how to set up best practices, how to, how to um, um, make psychedelic-assisted therapy as ethical um, and with integrity as possible. Yeah, so thanks for, uh, thanks for listening to this. We'll have uh, um, other episodes where we explore other um, potential pitfalls here, as well as you know, many other episodes that talk about benefits and and other interesting topics as well. Thanks for listening.